if you decide that you want to do something out of the kindness of your heart um, or just to say thank you, that's cool. But then you have to ask yourself the question is, am I going to let my guilt or my generosity damage the ability of the company to grow? How much more successful would you be if you had lunch once a week with insanely successful entrepreneurs who share their biggest secrets on how they think and achieve success? Grab your seat at the table, because this is Business Lunch with Roland Frazier and Ryan Dice. Welcome to another episode of Business Lunch. And today's a snackable episode with Roland where he's going to get into some more tactical strategies that you can start using to live a rich and happy life. If this is the first snackable episode you're hearing, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes that Roland has put out. And if you want to get notified every time we release a new episode, go to the new businesslunchpodcast.com website, and we'll send you detailed notes along with every episode. That's businesslunchpodcast.com, www.businesslunchpodcast.com, and you can sign up for the free email newsletter where you'll be able to get all the highlights and resources from the episodes. Okay, we are here for Business Lunch, and I'm going to pull up my notes so I can remember what Ryan and I were going to talk about today. And uh, I want to welcome you guys. Uh, my name is Roland Frazier. This is Business Lunch. I think we have another person on here. You want to introduce yourself? My name is Ryan Dice, uh, better known as Roland Frazier's business partner. <laughs> I love it. So we wanted, had a couple of things we wanted to talk about today. We're doing uh, an upgrade industri- uh, industry-wide. <laughs> We're doing an industry-wide upgrade. We're doing a uh, <laughs> Bottom floor portfolio-wide upgrade of uh, the people that we are in business with the people that we're doing business with the people that are on the teams we have um we have a lot of a players but not everybody was a perfect fit not saying that they're not good people just that in our world they didn't fit as an a player and so we've kind of uh, in in just one of the divisions for example we've added about uh about $100,000 a month in spend on people uh here in this time of being replaced with AI and all these other things, we actually hired real life people, and um, and it's already starting to make a difference. We're about thirty days into this, but basically, we just identified who were that we said we want to take this thing to the next level in that company, and we said, okay, so we've got good traction, we've got good cash flow, we have the money to do it. Let's upgrade everything. And so, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about. Is it time, and if so, what are the advantages and disadvantages for you to consider going all A players? And Ryan, I want you to share some of your thoughts on this. I, this is tough, man, because um, it, I think it, what it requires you to acknowledge as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, is that there were people who were perfectly who you needed in a particular moment in time. And that was good. And we thank them and we appreciate them, but they're not necessarily the people that are going to, you know, be able to, to get you to the next level. And so a lot of times, you know, the, the question that you, that you would always ask is if I had the opportunity to hire this person again, you know, would I, and very often for these people, you're like, heck yeah, but you're, you're overlaying where your business was, you know, based on where I was when I hired him, heck yeah. And I think the first thing that you have to acknowledge that with some people, it was the right decision before it wouldn't be the right decision to rehire them now. And that doesn't mean that you were wrong then and doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that you're no longer, you know, it just means that you're no longer aligned. Um, and those can just be, I think it's just important first and foremost to do business with that, 
without reality and say like, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm a bad person? Does it mean that I didn't do enough to train them to get them to go to the next level? Um, it, it just has, it has a lot of issues, especially early on in, in startups. Some of these people become really, really good friends of yours. And so, you know, does this mean that the friendship's going to end? It, it's tough. It's really, really, really tough. And so that's kind of just the first thing I would, I would throw out there is just, if you feel that, um, that's right. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 tough for us because the friend versus employee thing can be an issue if you have somebody that kind of came in at the beginning and they were an employee and they were fully compensated. Are they a founder or are they a friend? Because like, would they have done it just because they were friends or did you not know them at the time and then they came in and you became friendly? but does that qualify as a friend or did it evolve and, and pass over the threshold of employer employee? But how do you ever know when you're paying somebody effectively for their services? How do you know if that's a friend or not a friend? And then one thing I've experienced when I worked with people who were friends, then we worked together and then we didn't work together anymore. Nothing changed, nothing bad as a result of that but we found that we drifted completely apart because we weren't working together anymore and not that we weren't friends, but we definitely weren't in touch anymore. And so it's kind of hard to, to say like, how do I, how do I deal with these people that I've got? And Ryan, I want you to share some of the, the um, points that you and I talked about the other day in walking through a conversation with somebody about this. But before we do that, I just want to say like, if you're going to get, to where you want to go, you've got to have the people that can take you there. And it's not going to be something you can brute force on your own. There's a level at which the sheer brute force, I'm going to outwork everybody else is going to either kill you, destroy all your relationships, or ultimately cause you to run out of steam. And that's going to be bad for you. So none of those are good outcomes. You've got to have people that are able to support you along the way. So then you say, well, who are the people that can best support me? And I remember having a conversation with Clayt Mask, who founded uh, Infusionsoft, which is now Keep, about that along the way, there are thresholds of ones and threes. And at the ones and threes, that's when things start changing. So like at 100,000, 300,000, 1 million, 3 million, 10 million, 30 million, 100 million, 300 million, a billion, et cetera. And that you really find that you're a lot of times your key people in a growth environment like that cannot sustain and perform and suffer from huge imposter syndrome and um, and ultimately incompetence, not in a bad way, just that like they just don't know how to do this next thing because they haven't been there. They haven't seen it. They haven't lived it. And if you're going to get, if you're, if you've got somebody that you hired at 100, they can probably get you to 300 and they can probably get to a million, but they might have a hard time getting you to 3 million because your business is completely different at 3 million than it was at 100. And so he said his theory was you can go through a couple of these ones and threes, and then you're going to exhaust the skill set of the people in those positions. And so this is something we find ourselves in pretty frequently as we deal with, we like to acquire businesses that are 1 million to 10 million in EBITDA, sometimes more, but that's that's a pretty average range. And um, that means that there's a lot of change going on that people in the company are going to have to deal with. And, um, and if 
as the company grows, a lot of times they get kind of out over their skis a little bit. So uh, the first thing I guess to, to, to explore is how do you go about identifying when it's time? So Ryan, I'd like to get your opinion on that. And then let's talk about how do you find the right people for the job and how do you deal with that transition? Yeah. So as long as the company is continuing to scale seemingly without you know, any natural impediment, then that probably means you have the right team, yep. right? And so it, it becomes obvious that maybe you don't when things start to slow down and when things start to flatline. Um, because even if you're going to say, well, this is, it's an external force, you know, there's the economy or there's season or there's this, right? That's all fine. But if you can look around at any other company in your space that is growing in spite of that, then that usually means that it's because they have people that know how to do that. And so that's always the first thing that we've got to look at is, you know, we've got to acknowledge at some point that we're not growing as fast as we could or we should. So what does that mean? It, you know, it, it's got to be a people issue just every single time. I mean, every single problem, every single challenge in business is going to be ultimately a failure in leadership. E even if, you know, you could say, well, it's because I made that bad hire. It's right because you decided to make that bad hire or you didn't, you know, ah, this thing happened that we couldn't have expected. It's like, yeah, but maybe a different leader would have seen it coming or even if they didn't would have responded faster. So that's a blanket statement that just I still think is a good place to start from. So let's operate from this idea that, OK, we perhaps have uh, a leadership issue somewhere, you know, somewhere within the company. Um, for you as the CEO, as the founder, if you are the leader, then you could say, well, it's all my fault. And therefore, I'm going to, you know, to quit and fire myself. Um, and I've done that before. That's not where I would start. You can always go there. But if you think about it from a team perspective, right, you're not going to immediately be like, oh, well, the team's failing. So I guess I'll sell the team. No, you're, you're going to say, well, hey, head coach, what's going on? And the head coach is going to look down at their next assistant coaches. Be like, oh, we need some help there. They're going to look at their players. You know, and so you're you're generally going to look and see, you know, which of these is we look, you know, at the company, where are we missing? Now, when you start asking those questions, that's where all those emotional swirling that we went through before are going to pop up. And if you ever try to find an emotional solution to what is ultimately a business problem, you're not going to win. You're just going to frustrate yourself. So the first question I always ask myself is what is right? Right. So that's the first question. What is right? And, and the follow-up to that is, well, by whose standards, right? So what is right by the individual employee standards? Well, that's a different answer, perhaps, than if you say, well, what's right by, you know, my standards as the owner of this company? What's right by the company standards with respect to all the stakeholders? And so what I would ultimately come back to is, as a CEO, as the founder, as the leader of this company, I need to make decisions based on what is right for the company and its stakeholders, right? Just let, let's remove a lot of the emotions. Who defines what right is? It's a business. What's best for the business is what's best for the business, right? So that's, you just got to go there and you got to say, okay, what's best for the business? Now you can say, okay, but what's fair? And oftentimes these are two different questions, right? What is fair? And this is where you get into this thing where, especially in early stage companies. I've dealt with this. We know people who've gone with this as recently as just now. They'll want to say, but this person has been here all along. They've right. been here from the beginning. Don't they deserve to continue to have 
you know, this, this opportunity to, you know, to be at the company. And, and, and aren't they a founder too, really? Well, it's, it's kind of, don't they deserve the opportunity to stay with it? And if not, do they maybe deserve to like have some equity in this thing they, in this thing that they started? So it's like, okay, let's look at fair. Did you ask them to essentially work for free during the process? At some point in the process, did you ever say, you know, hey, can't really afford to pay you, but I still need help. Are you cool working for free? If yes, and if they agreed to do that, then yeah, they might be owed some type of compensation, whether it's in the form of equity or, you know, back pay with, you know, with interest for the time that they didn't get. But nine times out of 10, when we're talking to people, these folks that they want to quote unquote protect were there all along, but they were getting paid all along. Oftentimes they were getting paid above market rate. Yeah. So you could say, were they treated fairly along the way? Yes, they were. Um, and so as long as they were willing to do the job, they were paid to do the job. If they can't do the job, it would be unfair to the company to pay them to do a job that they can't do. Yep. So is it right? Is it fair? That still can make it difficult about, okay, then yeah, I, I guess, you know, they're, they're not, it's not right to keep them here for the company and it wouldn't be fair to the company really, or even to them. So we need to make a move that still can be difficult. But, you know, but that's ultimately the thought process that I, you know, that I go through. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. I think that that really helps I me, mean, I guess, with the, the guilt and the truly understanding that if, if you've compensated somebody fairly at market value the whole time, then they really aren't entitled to anything else. If you decide that you want to do something out of the kindness of your heart um, or just to say thank you, that's cool. But then you have to ask yourself the question is, am I going to let my guilt or my generosity damage the ability of the company to grow and therefore not only damage me and my family and because of our stake in this, but all of the other people who are getting opportunity from this, our customers who we're serving, our suppliers who we are working with to provide the things that help us provide the things to our ultimate customer. And and I think the answer there has to be, no, we need to fairly assess where things stand. And if we find ourselves coming into a stall, and like Ryan said, you might say, well, it's not the people, it's the product, or it's the product market fit, or it's our current inability to access capital, or it's, uh, it's the need for things that we don't have, or it's the offer, or it's our sales channels, or it's our uh, constraint of we don't have enough salespeople or we don't have enough finance people or we don't have enough customer service people. All those are things that good leaders should be thinking about, that good leaders have to solve for. And so if the people in your company can't solve for those things, you got the wrong people. And I think that those things are all symptomatic of not having the right people because the right people can fix that. And so if you think about that, then you can say, okay, how do I assess now that things seem like they're going askew a little bit, like they're a little bit off track, then how do I determine that it is the people here? I think that then what you and I have talked about, Ryan, is kind of going through an audit of the people and saying, let's write the job description for this position in the company from the perspective of where the company is now. What does the role require? What are the skills? What's the experience? And then after we write that job description, 
let's see if the people who are in those roles would actually be hired again today. And if they would, would they even qualify for an interview? Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, would they qualify for an interview? And then let's say we interviewed them, you know, but look at like, just would they be capable based on that objective assessment of this is what the experiences that they've got. This is the skills that they've got. These are the connections that they've got. Can they fill the role that we've defined objectively? And if they can't, then what do you do, Ryan? What do you think? I mean, then, then I think what you have is a really difficult conversation um, on your hands. And, and it, it's not a fun conversation. It's not one that I, that I envy. It's a conversation I've had to have a number of times. Um, and, it's, and it's never fun. But this is your job, right? When you, when you think about what does it take to get the company to the next level, it means everybody has to perform in the role as is required today. And your role as a founder CEO is to perform it in this capacity of making sure that you're building the best possible team. And what I would simply say is early stage company founders, you achieve success because you had all the answers, right? You ask the question, do you figured stuff out? But as the company scales, and this is so important to keep in mind, I absolve you of the need to have all of the answers. Your job is to ask the questions and to build a team of people who have the answers. And so if you find that you're asking good questions and the people around you don't have the answers to those questions, you either have to say like, well, I guess I'm asking completely unanswerable questions, which again, is anybody else doing it the same or better than you are? Nope, you're asking good questions. It simply means that you don't have the people on your team who have the ability to answer the questions that you're asking. Yeah. That is when you know ultimately that this is not the person for the role. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean we don't thank them for where they were. But when you're building the, the job description, if this person were to leave tomorrow and you were to write up a job description of the person that you would hire, I guarantee you, you would hire somebody who had the ability to answer the questions that you're asking. And if they couldn't answer those questions, you wouldn't hire them. And if you did hire them and found that they couldn't, you'd fire them pretty quickly because you wouldn't have the emotional baggage. And so once you find that there are so many questions that we have, and unfortunately you don't have the answers, when I've had those conversations, it goes something like that. It, it literally goes, hey, I want to I want to talk about something. I mean, obviously we're not doing great in this particular area. And there are lots of challenges that we're facing. And I'm here to help and I'm rooting for you, but I'm asking questions and you don't seem to know how to make it better. And, and I understand, like, I don't either, but this is your specific role. Like your job is to take these things. This is why we're big on scorecards. Take these things that are currently in the red or in the yellow and make them green. And if you're saying you don't know how to make the metrics that are red or yellow green, then can we both agree that, that we've got a, a problem here? And even if you're saying like, oh, but it's impossible. Okay, then you should probably find a place where you can succeed. But obviously, you know, you don't want to work for a company that's asking you to do the impossible. Um, and it, when, it, when you can get it out of the emotional and into the what we need right now is the ability to go from A to B, X to Y, whatever. You don't know how. And I don't know how to help you. So it's my job to get somebody in here who does. Yeah. Those are difficult conversations. And, and the sometimes you can have a conversation where you say, we're going to need to bring somebody in over you. You know, we're going to need to bring somebody in over you. Um, and sometimes people struggle with that because they don't, they don't like to be capped. It's why handing out job titles is really important. Don't, if you're a three person company and one of them is a marketer, 
you know, who's kind of like running some ads and stuff, don't make that person your CMO. Yeah. Come on, right? Always make the title align with the actual role of, of that company. Same with pay, because it's a lot easier to cap somebody with someone if their if their title and if their job description, you know, show what it is. And, and you're basically saying, I need somebody who could do this and you don't know how to do any of that. So I got to bring somebody in over you. That's fine. Where it gets tough is when you can't afford to bring that person in yeah. because you're paying the person you got essentially the equivalent salary to what the person you need is. Or they've been in charge the whole time and now they have to answer to somebody else. They don't want to relinquish. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't want to not. That's the other thing about not using those titles too soon is that then perhaps you can still have a head of marketing and have a CMO and they have different roles or the roles evolve and then the person doesn't have to be demoted that, but, but it seems like more often than not, it just ultimately they've done what they can do in the company and then it's time for the next opportunity. Would you agree with that? Either because of ego or because they're un- unable or unwilling to take a pay cut. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's where uh, this has happened a number of times. And, and I found when I approached it that way, you know, we need somebody who can do this. If you have ideas and you're just not telling me, then please like, let's figure it out. If there's ways I can support you that I haven't done so let me know. Yeah. But it seems like we've been trying for a while and it just isn't working out. So we got to, you know, talk about what is it, you know, what does it mean to hopefully part as friends and to figure something out so I can get somebody in here who can do this. And sometimes that conversation goes well and the other person is mature and understands um, and they're excited to take on a similar role in another company. Um, And and sometimes it doesn't. But I think you just got to go back to what's right for the company, what's fair for the person, all the other people involved. And if you've acted fairly um, and and they're going to make it uh, personal and emotional, it's hard, but you just can't own that. Like you don't, like you, you they're going to try to give you that guilt. You don't have to take it. Um, it's not the way professional organizations are run. So let's take a break right now and, uh, and then we'll come back and we've got a couple of other fun things to talk about. But uh, if you're going through this right now and you've got some feedback or uh, thoughts on it, definitely hit us up at businesslunchpodcast.com. Let us know what's going on. Feel free to ask questions, I believe. You can ask questions. There's a place there for you to record your questions by audio, and we'll talk about them on a later show. We'll be back in just a second. Okay, so moving on from the difficult subject of how do you know when people are maybe not continuing to be a good fit for the company and how do you get those A players in, I'd like to chat about rebrands. Recently, Elon Musk rebranded Twitter, and it's Bluebird and tweeting into X with uh, a jet black background and posts instead of tweets. The bird is gone. The X is is here. Um, similarly, Overstock.com acquired the assets, at least the branding assets of Bed Bath and Beyond, and has rebranded itself as Bed Bath and Beyond. I'd like to know what do you think of those two rebrands. And then let's talk a little bit about when is the right time to think about and what is the best way to go about doing a rebrand? To me, those are two totally different functions of of rebrand. Um, Because I think a rebrand can be appropriate when you're adding new, um, when, when you're basically adding a new value proposition. So I don't like the rebrand of Twitter to X. 
like I, I, I and, and this is one of those like rare times. I think Elon is generally, you know, a brilliant entrepreneur, right along more times, right way more often than he's wrong. I think he missed on this one. Yeah. Um, and the reason I think that he missed on it is because to me, I get what he wants to do with X. He wants it to be kind of this everything app, but he did the rebrand before he added any new features. Uh-huh. And so what you basically have is just, it's just this thing that you always have. We're now going to call it something different. Uh-huh. All that does is create friction and you take a valuable brand that you bought and you kind of crumple it up and throw it out the window. I don't understand that at all. So for me to, to rebrand, because what you are now is something fundamentally different, I get it. And so had they been adding all these other features and then we're going to bring them all under one everything app that we're calling X. Okay, cool. I get it. Rebranding Twitter to X before you've added anything. I don't get it at all. Now contrast that with, um, with Overstock and Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know enough about Overstock and what they were, uh, what they were doing, but to the extent that most of their stuff was in home goods, I think that Bed Bath and Beyond is a better brand than Overstock.com. So I think the other reason, I think one reason that you would rebrand is because you're now doing something fundamentally different and you want to reflect that. The other reason to rebrand is because you acknowledge that your previous brand wasn't that great and you've got an, an, the ability to pivot to something that will be more compelling or acquire an existing brand that does have some brand equity that you can kind of combine with yours and you get the best of both worlds. So yeah. I'm generally bullish on the overstock rebrand to Bed Bath & Beyond, although personally, I don't think you need to rebrand. I, I would just soon keep those as two separate brands. Um, but if you're going to, if, if we're going to say we're going to rebrand, I'm more bullish on that one than the Twitter to X. I'm not saying that, that X can't still be successful, but it just seemed like he wanted to do something to mix it up. And I think it was premature. What do yeah, you think? I, 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 I agree with what you said. I, I imagine if I'm him because the press has just been relentless in beating him up. They all want to see him fail with this acquisition, which is bizarre to me. Um, but, um, but I think that it's possible that he just wants to say all that stuff that was before, this is not Twitter. This yeah. is not Twitter. So I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm saying that the lazy meetings, the lack of innovation, the months to get a feature through all of that, the bloat of people and management, it's all gone. This is not Twitter. We're not running Twitter's business model. We're running a new version of it with the 380 million MAUs that we've got. And it's going to be better. And we're paying out creators. And so I think that I think it actually is a good rebrand in. I, mean, I don't like X. I don't like seeing X on my screen and X on my, you know, on my uh, app uh, list. It just seems like a boring name. Uh, and of course, the Twitter bird was cute and everything. But I do think that he he accomplishes saying, look, you can criticize me all you want, but I bought Twitter to put a different vision of a different company in place with the infrastructure and mostly with the users that Twitter had. I'm going to continue to serve them. I'm actually going to serve them better, but it's not business as usual. It's not Twitter. It's not the friendly bluebird. It's black X Elon style. And that's what it's going to be going forward. So I kind of like it from that perspective for bed, bath and beyond. I think they're doing 
probably they're going to do successfully what Ty Lopez tried to do, but wasn't successful. He would go out and buy Radio Shack and Dress Barn and um, Pier One Imports and then take those brands that had spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over the years to get a place in the customer's mind and then putting that on his no-name e-commerce companies to lend credibility and and literally brand equity purchased for pennies on a dollar. Uh, I don't think that he had the team or experience to, or the capital, honestly, to invest, to make those successful. I think Overstock does. And I, so what Overstock, what I believe Overstock is doing is saying, we're not just a place that people dumps their inventory that you can go and buy it less expensive. We're not just the place where you've got inventory that's excess or that's, you know, obsolesced or whatever that you can come and sell it for pennies on the dollar and we're going to liquidate it for you. We're actually going into retail online. And I think that an expansion of their business with the infrastructure they've got, with the funding they've got, with the background they've got and the experience, they're not going to fundamentally change their business. They're just saying, we're going to step into this brand that no longer exists. We're going to fill this hole in the space that we are uniquely qualified to fill. We can effectively be the Walmart because our supply chain is all of the people that we've already got that are bringing these goods. But instead of selling it wholesale, now we're going to sell it retail to everybody that's used to retail. We're going to inherit the brand equity of the customer base that this company has before it dissipates. And that seems like it's a very, very positive rebrand for margin enhancement. What do you think about that? I, so again, I think if I'm overstock to me, it, to me, it makes sense. Um, you know, I think, I think it's a smart move. I think ultimately though, there's still some degree of screwed. Um, some degree of what? Of screwed. Okay. Um, I just don't believe that retail brands have that much brand equity anymore. I think product brands have tremendous brand equity. I think yeah. creator brands and influencer brands have tremendous brand equity. And I, I think at the highest level, if you're Amazon or you're Walmart, sure. But they function way more as channels, right? They do. Yeah. And so what we basically have is an Amazon-Walmart duopoly. Um, you've got, and these, these two duopolies are featuring the product brands that actually matter. And they've got some power because people are actively looking for those product brands. But I don't think, you know, I don't know enough about, um, and maybe you do, it'd be cool to get an update. I don't know enough about like the Ty Lopez and, and his not strategy and how, not working out. Yeah. No. I'm but not then surprised. you look at a company like Wayfair, right? Or Dick's Sporting Goods. You know, you look at, at companies that do get categories and I think there's room for, I think there's a duopoly of general marketplaces there online. Yep. But I, agree. I don't that's, think that verticalized yet there is. I, I agree. And that's that's why I think the shift from overstock to Bed Bath & Beyond makes sense. Because yeah. what you're basically saying is we can control a verticalized you know, retail category. I still think that that is far less if you don't have big box retail, if you don't have the advantage of I can just drive somewhere and get it which is an advantage of some of these places. I just want to go in there and get it. I bought, you know, you know, my kids are kids are playing baseball. Okay, I don't necessarily want to buy a bat on Amazon. <laughs> Come on, Timmy, let's go to, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods and let's swing some of these different bats, right? If I'm going to buy golf clubs, 
I think there's a place where that makes sense. And then you want to go to, um, to the category leader. Yeah. Uh, but I think that exists in sporting goods. I do think it exists in home goods. But I think that Overstock will have almost no advantage whatsoever if they don't start popping Bed Bath & Beyond stores up. If it yeah, just stays uh, online, then and, you're and competing. That may, and maybe that is their plan, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we don't, we're not privy to it, but online, God help you if you're trying to create some kind of verticalized, um, you know, online store because yeah. there's Amazon, there's walmart.com. I mean, there's, you know, it's going to be really, really tough. People are going to search for products. That's my take. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so if you're thinking about a rebrand then, and, and there's been, there's been a lot of them that, uh, that, you know, are, are, I think would be surprising to people to, to know how different companies started out. But um, without going into that, just steps wise, um, is it basically market research, surveys, kind of see where we are right now, what's the brand perception, take a look at our share of voice, look at how people perceive us versus how we want to be perceived going forward. Do we need to modernize that kind of stuff, then plan it, internal rollout, external rollout, test and see? What, what do you think the process is? I think, I think you first got to figure out what's the problem you're solving for. Okay. And if sales are down, um, if you feel like you're starting to get kind of, your stuff's getting a little bit dated and you feel like you're getting beat up by the competition, I would argue that a new logo or even a new name is not going to be the answer to that. If anything, it's going to take what you had and you're probably going to lose it. I really can't think, and I'm not a, I'm not a brand um, expert strategist, and I, I don't haven't really studied a lot of brand history. But when I think about, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken rebranding to KFC, fine, I'll buy that. You want to go international, you don't necessarily want to be associated with this just one state, fine. But people were already calling it KFC. So yeah. I think you've got to ask yourself, are we leaning into what our people are already calling it? That's that's a different animal, right? That's I, I, that's more customer centric. I, I love that too because I, I hate the rebrand of there's a fashion house Yves Saint Laurent, and yeah. Yves Saint Laurent was then YSL again makes sense Kentucky Fried Chicken to KFC it's shortened that's what we all call it anyway and then they rebranded to Saint Laurent so they just got rid of Yves but Saint Laurent to me is like it feels way more generic right off the bat and it's not. It's not what we all know. And why is that better than YSL? I, I like sometimes I, I just don't get it. Doesn't make any sense. I think these people get paid a lot because what they don't know how to do when brands get big is they forgot how to create offers. Yeah. So if you go back to what launched all these brands in the first place, it was some amazing offer, yeah. right? Whether it was Chanel and the little black dress. And, and let's look at a, at a brand that hasn't changed its logo or its name and has had a tremendous like upswing Popeye's yep. chicken. Yep. Right. Popeye's chicken. And what did Popeye's do? They made a really good spicy chicken sandwich. Yeah. And then they made it to where you couldn't just get this spicy chicken sandwich wherever. So there was some scarcity. And next thing you know, this brand is experiencing a resurgence and a renaissance. So for me, the, the second that I'm in a room and somebody says, you know, our brand's a lot of date and the marketing guy speaks up is like, yeah, I mean, I think we really need to bring in this branding outfit to look at maybe redesigning the logo or coming up with a new name. That's the second I'm looking for a new marketing guy. Because um, what I want somebody to say is, if the brand is getting out of date, if the brand is losing touch, it means from a product or a services perspective, we somewhere along the way stop serving our customer. Yeah. And 
The second we do that, they'll care about our logo again, except they probably still won't. But um, unless you're a luxury brand, but yeah, it means we just missed. Uh, and you do see this with the fashion houses as well. You know, oftentimes they'll go out of style because their products go out of style. People stop yeah. liking it. So I don't, I don't think there's ever a good time to do it. Yeah. Personally. And uh, online, uh, my son Ryan was mentioning that uh, he used to buy a whole lot of stuff from a drop site called Mass Drop, and they were really they specialized in tech goodies. And I think that I think our, one of our funds or Kamal might have even invested in Mass yeah, Drop. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure. Absolutely. So, they rebranded to drop just from mass drop to drop. And, um, what he was saying is that all of the YouTube, like, especially when you got influencers and affiliates, you got to think about this, all of those links that they had now are broken. They didn't re forward. Like they didn't. So I guess if you're going to do it, you definitely want to think about how does it impact all the people that are supporting you? And I don't know if they're doing better or worse than before, but I can't think that that was helpful to them. I, I don't think anybody was sitting around saying, I really don't like mass drop. It's, it's so long to say mass drop. I just want to buy from drop.com. And also from an SEO and all those other st standpoints, it's like, so if I look for drop, I mean, it, it's, it's just so generic. I guess that's a, that's a, that's a real challenge, but, but anyway, just something for you guys to think about. If you're thinking about rebranding, it's um, you might want to look at things like your offer, and um, and who you want to be very, very carefully before that. Any parting words on the thoughts around branding? Yeah, don't rebrand. <laughs> don't rebrand. Okay. But I'm rooting for you, Elon. I want X to work. Please, for the love of God, if you're going to rebrand because you change your value proposition, deliver on the changes of the value proposition because it's still freaking Twitter. And I love Twitter and I use it every day, but I don't want to zeet or whatever it's maybe supposed to be. All right. That's my <laughs> All right, guys. Hope this episode was helpful to you. And um, if you enjoyed it, we would love it if you would share it with a friend and we will see you next time on business lunch podcast. Hey, Roland Frazier here. If you're looking for a way to grow your business exponentially, to get more customers and ultimately increase your wealth, there's no faster way to do it than to acquire other businesses that already have the customers, products, services, teams, and media that you want. If you want to double your sales, just acquire a company that has the same sales as yours. It sounds simple, but far too many people end up starting new businesses that fail and forget that they could skip all the hard stuff and just acquire one that already exists. There's a reason why private equity firms, family offices, big companies like Apple, Google, and some of the smartest entrepreneurs on the planet do not start new businesses from scratch. They acquire already successful businesses. And when they do it, they instantly increase their sales, their profits. If they want market share, they increase that. They can get new products and services to offer all instantly. Hey, look, 90% of new businesses fail. 90%. Why not acquire an already successful business and increase your chances of success by 900%. What most people don't realize is you can acquire highly profitable businesses with no money out of your own pocket in pretty much any country in the world, regardless of your credit and without having to go find a bunch of investors or needing any experience. Look, I've been acquiring businesses for over 30 years now and I cover the whole process. 
in my epic investing strategy training, and I want to give it to you 100% free. Just visit businesslaunchpodcast.com forward slash epic to get your free access to my epic investing training right now while it's available. Hey, Roland Frazier here. If you're looking for a way to grow your business exponentially, to get more customers and ultimately increase your wealth, there's no faster way to do it than to acquire other businesses that already have the customers, products, services, teams, and media that you want. If you want to double your sales, just acquire a company that has the same sales as yours. It sounds simple, but far too many people end up starting new businesses that fail and forget that they could skip all the hard stuff and just acquire one that already exists. There's a reason why private equity firms, family offices, big companies like Apple, Google, and some of the smartest entrepreneurs on the planet do not start new businesses from scratch. They acquire already successful businesses. And when they do it, they instantly increase their sales, their profits. If they want market share, they increase that. They can get new products and services to offer all instantly. Hey, look, 90% of new businesses fail. 90%. Why not acquire an already successful business and increase your chances of success by 900%? What most people don't realize is you can acquire highly profitable businesses with no money out of your own pocket in pretty much any country in the world, regardless of your credit and without having to go find a bunch of investors or needing any experience. Look, I've been acquiring businesses for over 30 years now, and I cover the whole process in my epic investing strategy training, and I want to give it to you 100% free. Just visit businesslaunchpodcast.com forward slash epic to get your free access to my epic investing training right now while it's available.